0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of mastermind.fm In this episode we're going to be dealing with NFTs once again and specifically law. So we have a lawyer in this episode joining us, he's pseudonymous. So that's one aspect that was new for me and yeah, it went well. We discussed a lot of interesting facets of NFT law, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. And definitely, if this episode has piqued your interest, do your own research, further research on the topics we discussed. I think there's a lot to learn within the space of NFTs and legal aspects. A big thanks to the sponsors of this show, Inrento. InRento makes rental property investment easy, it's a buy-to-let property crowdfunding platforms that allows investors to easily invest in carefully selected rental properties. Investing within Rento is similar to owning a rental property, however, within Rento, you don't have to worry about the day-to-day property management, and in periods of vacancy, you will get still fixed interest payments. And in-rental allows investors to earn passive income from rental properties without having the need to invest large amounts in order to acquire the properties. In-rental investments are driven by cash flow and rental contracts, which is considered a lower risk investment. You can hear about in-rental in my interview with Gustas, the founder, in episode 146. To go and explore more about InRento, visit inrento.com and you can start earning rental income today with investments from 500 euro. Today we have a special guest, Hearsay. He's our first pseudonymous guest. And we're going to be talking about crypto and law, the intersection of these two. Uh, I know that Lots of the listeners and participants in the crypto space get scared when they hear about law and taxation and legality of things. So we're here to kind of touch upon that on those topics without giving legal advice obviously because of the fact that you have to have legal advice from a lawyer that you know in your own jurisdiction and things might be different depending on what your circumstances are and where you live. So Hearsay, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: All right. So and uh, we also have my dad, as usual, Joseph. Hello. I'm here to ask questions that the man in the street will ask. (laughs) Yes. So um, I'm the more technical guy. I've been investing in the crypto space since 2015 and uh, done a lot of research also in taxation. I have a blog about finance. So I've done kind of a lot of research and my dad comes from a traditional finance perspective. And kind of that's also what makes the show interesting, at least I hope, for our listeners. To start off, I also want to mention that you're part of the Punkscapes team, which, and you've been doing some great work with the animations on those banners. I will be sure to link uh the project again although we've done two episodes with the founder Jalil as well and yeah let's start about NFTs because I think that's what we're all excited about at the moment when I think about NFTs from a legal perspective I think of tax and also licensing which one do you want to start with
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh this is uh you could we'll do this as dealer's choice whatever you like
0: So okay, when I started off with NFTs, the licensing part was actually more interesting for me because as many do, I don't think I understood what exactly we're purchasing when we buy an NFT. And this was something that I realized very early on and I wanted to know about. But what I saw was that many people in the Discord chats don't actually know what they're buying. And when when I dug into it, several projects had very different licensing terms so i i guess we can just break it down into the i think i've seen maybe three different main categories of of licenses so maybe we can get into that and maybe have a short discussion on that sure
1: um yeah what rights you acquire when you acquire an nft is a is an interesting topic, right? And what what do you actually have? What do you own when you own an NFT? I think one of the starting things to think about, and and the short answer, of course, is that different projects have approached this in different ways.
0: And I guess um, I guess sorry to interrupt you, but no, no problem. We, we hear the right click save no jibe that typically non NFT holders don't um, the NFT buyers with. So how much well, yeah, of that I'm- is true, actually?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to the right-click save point. Um, if you buy the Mona Lisa, let's say, you don't own the rights to the imagery of the Mona Lisa. Others will still use the imagery of the Mona Lisa. One might, you could imagine, and maybe we laugh at this because we've grown up with an understanding of how traditional art operates like this. And but but we don't sort of always apply that understanding over to NFTs. So. I could imagine a child at a museum taking a photograph of the Mona Lisa and saying, this is stupid. Why would anyone pay millions for that? I could take a photograph and now I have the Mona Lisa and I didn't pay millions. I paid just, you know, whatever the seven bucks to get into the museum. You know, what is the difference? So that isn't quite a licensing question, but it's a, this is just really a response to the right click kind of crowd is it's always been the case that there is value in Authenticity. There is value in some linkage to you know the original as a concept. I think authenticity as a principle is probably the most valuable societal thing these days, right? It's the one thing you can't mint. <laughs> you know, um, you can't just freely make more of. How do you how do you generate authenticity? Is is kind of a a concept that's I think propelling all manner of industries these days, not just the crypto land, right?
0: So I guess uh, for but, the for the traditional arts you can of of course take a photo of uh, an art piece but there are many artists that specialize in reproductions and i mean
1: sure right so so photography isn't the only way in which yeah yeah and we can talk about counterfeit kind of concepts of counterfeits and things like that but the basic idea of we all accept the principle that the original is more valuable or that at least that there is a logic to the original being more valuable than a copy even a copy that's done Let's say you hire, you know, a great painter to do a copy of the Mona Lisa and they use the same quality paint, they use the same quality, so and forth, so forth. You you can say with great certainty that no matter how good a job they do of the copy, even if we can turn this into a hypothetical where they do a perfect job of the copy, the copy is not going to be worth as much. It just won't be. Why is that? We care about the history of the item. Why do we, you know, why do we care about that? I mean, these are kind of fundamental questions about art, right? But in other words what I guess I'm just saying generally to the right click crowd is these questions aren't new these these issues weren't created by nfts you know what makes a thing more value and you know sometimes you'll talk you'll hear people talk about oh you know you're just getting a jpeg what's the utility of that you know like uh, and by the way there's of course other answers to utility in the nft space too but even if you're just talking about a jpeg that doesn't resolve the question. That isn't why the painting is more valuable, say. The original is more valuable. It's not as though you know the utility of I can hang it on a wall explains the price of the Mona Lisa. I can hang a poster of the Mona Lisa on the wall. It is not the fact that it covers a square of my wall that makes the original Mona Lisa. I hope you don't mind my using that example oh, <laughs> repeatedly. No. Um, but it isn't the fact that it is physical. It isn't the fact that it uses materials that have, that aren't zeros and ones, I can go to an art supply store and buy paints, potentially of better uh, quality than were available at the time of, you know, that the Mona Lisa was painted. But why is that one still more valuable? All that I'm saying is that there's nothing new about these questions. These are, these are concepts that in the art world and in, you know, have, have, what is art is a concept that the art world loves to debate for centuries right <laughs> that, that's a fundamental concept to the art world for and and you know we, we mentioned punkscapes one of the things i really we've seen this resurgence of 8-bit art these days why is 8-bit art why are crypto punks so so valuable um and there's probably lots of answers to that question but i think in particular the art style of 8-bit art has a lot of sort of thematic connections to what's happening societally right now. I mean, 8-bit art, when it came out, right, when it, was, when it started happening, I think you mostly have to point to the early 80s for that, maybe some mm-hmm. in the late 70s, but mostly early 80s, was by necessity for early video games and things like that, right? But now, treating it as a style and treating it as an aesthetic that we are desiring, instead of something you're running away from, remember, we've seen video games can we make this look more photoreal? Can we make AAA games that have a more... You know, we've seen that evolution over time, but this return to well, we're interested in this aesthetic. I think maybe says something about, and I know I'm moving far from the the legal, the the uh, licensing issue question, but I think that aesthetic captures some kind of zeitgeist of what's happening culturally.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree that right now, that's the case. I think that might also change in the future when, for example, we're not, maybe we're not on Twitter all day, but we're on a metaverse all day and mm-hmm. the whole world is 3D and then we would value other things. I don't think we can project current tastes of art in the, in the NFT space more than a few years into the future. And that's kind of wh- why maybe I wouldn't necessarily want. To buy a crypto as a long-term investment although i love them at the moment sure and tastes change right tastes change with
1: the time but um, i do think that there is something to that aesthetic as as capitalized you know just like there was something to what warhol was doing in the 60s with the aesthetic of this corporate marketing kind of concept you know the campbell soup cans and and things like that said something about what was happening societally I, I am not an art critic, and so I'm, I'm in grave danger when we go into when I'm trying to make... let back certain.
0: to the topic, then. neither am I. <laughs> but,
2: uh, well, here, so I have a question here. Sure. So you said that uh, you brought the Mona Lisa as an example, but talking about the Mona Lisa, um, we all know that it's heavily guarded, um, basically. If I go out in the street flaunting a picture of the Mona Lisa, uh, claiming that's, uh, that it is the original, nobody would believe me because they know that uh, it's in Paris. If I have an NFT, just a computer image, I mean, how can I claim that I have the origin? And if there are reproductions of
0: it, how can I stop them? And who's, go- who's going to believe who? Well, the the second part of the question is the most interesting. The first one, I can respond to myself. It's on the blockchain. It's recorded on the blockchain directly, so it's actually an improvement over traditional art, because you can see the provenance of your NFT directly back to the contract when it was minted. So that's easy to say. For the but second part, who's going part, to
2: check that? Experts in the field.
1: It doesn't no, require, I I, I'm so sorry to be uh, interrupting. I, I think you ask a great question, but it is also a question that crypto has a better answer than the Mona Lisa has. It is a question that crypto has a better answer to. And yes, it's true. If you go around the street and say, I've got a Mona Lisa, uh, most people aren't going to believe you. But we have had plenty of, we have had in the traditional art world, lots of art that has authenticity issues, right? Was this really a Picasso or not? It's definitely... Things, issues that have come up historically quite a bit, in some cases without you know, necessarily persuasive resolution. In the crypto world, you really can check. For example, I own an NFT, the word hearsay, hearsay.eth, right? I can prove that to both of you. I can prove that you're speaking to the person who owns hearsay.eth. Um, and this gets into, I keep using the word pseudonymous, you know, uh, rather than anonymous, it gets into that distinction. Even if you didn't hear my voice, or even if somebody, you know, had the same voice as me and another and we did another one of these, we could verify that it was the same owner of something with the token hearsay.eth in both conversations. Um, That's
0: interesting. How how would you do that in this case?
1: Well, so for example, you can sign a wallet transaction. There are several sites that do it, that make it very easy to do. I can show you on the screen if you like. Uh, Hold on just a
0: moment. Okay, so in that case, while you're speaking to us, you would be able to make the transaction and we'd be able to verify it in real time, kind of. That's how we'd know that we're speaking to the right person.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you don't need to use one of these particular websites, but things like MyEtherWallet and MyCrypto, for example, are both sites that have this set up in a friendly way. And this isn't a transaction. I'm not actually talking about a transaction. And that's important to, to note. I'm not talking about recording anything on the blockchain. Why is that important? Mostly just because who wants to pay gas fees, right? (laughs) But you don't actually need to record a transaction in order to prove that somebody owns the wallet. You can write a message and encrypt it from that wallet such that only that wallet could have been the source of the message. This is the idea of public key and private key encryption, so that somebody receiving can see the message, can verify that it came from the source, but they can't fake it. They can't create their own now as that as that person does that make sense that's really one of the big things that cryptography gave us this uh and not just for cryptocurrency but in general this private keys and public keys as a system provides a mechanism to verify uh at least that someone is in control of a particular crypto wallet does that make sense i think joseph i i know that your listeners here are not seeing the video to see your expression but you look like you're doubting me about this as being a
2: practical solution (laughs)
1: Is that a? Uh, <laughs> am I reading your face <laughs> correctly?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're reading it well. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm a bit perplexed because if there are millions of NFTs around the world, and somebody I don't know from which country, let's say China or Hong Kong or Australia or from wherever, copies my NFT, how am I going to stop him?
0: They can copy yeah, can it copy just them. like. They can what do you mean it? copy? I think it's important to define what you mean by copy.
2: Therefore, let's say um, I put my image on Facebook or whatever. Um, I put my NFT, sort of being my photo, it represents me.
0: And somebody else does the same.
2: How am I, uh, am I going to stop him?
0: Yeah, that's the second part of the question, which I find interesting, as in I don't know if there were any precedents legally of people stopping others from using their PFP, for example.
1: So we do have laws regulating things like in, in, in the U.S., for example, we have use of likeness laws. Um, I'm, and this is before we get into, you know, other forms of intellectual property. You have a right to your likeness right? <laughs> There's some funny lawsuits historically, by the way, you know, um, Colonel Sanders with Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm-hmm. you ever seen uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken? You know, Colonel Sanders, who was both a real person and the logo for Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? That company, and I'm going to explain this case very poorly because I don't remember it in great detail, but basically he lost the rights to the logo. He appeared in a parade and Kentucky Fried Chicken sued him for using their logo. Right? (laughs) So so there are these interesting intersections of use of likeness. I don't think that's your question exactly. But in other words, if somebody uses your photograph, if somebody poses as you, as you, let's say, by taking your photo and posting it as their profile picture on Twitter, which is really a web 2.0 sort of question, right? It's a a web 2.0 problem, rather, where anybody can upload any picture. And yeah, there's nothing stopping people other than Twitter enforcing some rules. If somebody objects to it and Twitter has some mechanism to check, OK, are you really the owner of this likeness? Or are you really the owner of this imagery or whatever it is enforcing it? Obviously, that there's a lot of practical uh, difficulties um, from an administrative standpoint for a company like Twitter to to do that. They try. There's And, and you know, impersonation is one of the... Uh, basis for banning an account on Twitter that is that is listed in their terms and conditions. But of course, they struggle how to enforce that, right? It's very, very challenging. You know
0: what? I, I would argue though, that in the traditional art world, it's much easier to sell a fake than, than in the NFT world, you know, because you can easily check things within the NFT space. Whereas with an art piece of art, I personally wouldn't know unless I have an expert with me who maybe will also make a mistake well let's make
1: let's let's make two points let me make a distinction Uh, um, one distinction is because Joseph's question was about displaying millions of nfts out there what's to stop somebody from copying how would anybody know um it's a little different if you're copying something that's obscure than if you're copying something that's famous and I think that's true whether we're talking about nfts or not right if I'm copying a, a a the Mona Lisa, it's very obviously a copy because you already know about the Mona Lisa. That's what makes it so obvious, right? And if I'm copying something from one of the millions of pieces of art that's out there in the in the cosmos, right, that nobody ever heard of, uh, it's it's very. How would you how would you solve that in the traditional art world? There wouldn't really be. There's not a very great mechanism there either, right? it with nfts if you're copying something if the question is just who made this originally first of all nfts have the date they were created built into them so it's very easy to see which came first modern art you know if you make a painting it's not necessarily as easy we do have mechanisms to, to you know to date the paint and oils and things like that but if you're talking about within recent time frame that's not so easy i think the question of imp- impersonating a valuable nft however it's very easy to catch with just a little bit of know-how. If you're trying to impersonate one of the, you know, the blue chip projects of NFTs, you're not going to fool anyone. Partly, you're going to run into with the really blue chip projects. People already, just like the Mona Lisa, they people often already know who owns them. <laughs> you know, um, if you if you copy some of the more famous uh, NFTs, even the particular ones within a collection, and start using it as your profile picture on uh, Twitter, you'll get a lot of angry messages from people. People will know, and and uh, that's even without that. Even without checking, they'll already know because they kind of know who who owns it, and they'll notice if that person sells it. You know, those sales are big deals. So, so I that's think, one thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I think with PFPs in particular, it's a very social niche of the NFT space, and also uh, mostly a, a means of either using like creating an identity, especially if you're going pseudonymous or as a means of flexing your wealth. So the people who are using them for these purposes would have kind of built an image or brand around them and someone else coming along with the same image. doesn't really matter because people know how to make the distinction.
1: I think that's right. And the second point I wanted to make that's we've talked a lot about at Punkscape lately is really the question of should you mind, should you mind if somebody uh, imitates your project, even directly, even if they rip it off. Let's let's calling that rip off. So ripping yeah, something. I off. would
2: mind. I would mind. Let me tell you why. Because if I buy one of the nicest images um, available and I pay say a hundred thousand dollars for it. Obviously, many people would like it, and the more they like it, the more is the risk, the greater is the risk that they would copy it. Therefore, who guarantees to me that the hundred thousand dollars that I spent wouldn't come down to zero?
1: well, let me let me throw out an alternative theory for you, and I am not the creator of this the, this concept of this concept, so. <laughs> I don't claim originality on this one, but there is a theory that the value of an NFT is directly proportional to the number of derivatives based on it. In other words, the more it's been imitated, the more people want that original. So we talk about this in the Pugscape community. Too. Reverse
2: psychology.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. It's not that it's reverse psychology. It's the idea. It's, it's basically art is a meme, Right value of art is a meme. And, and how, what makes a meme successful, right? Are you comfortable with my using the word meme <laughs> as, a, sure, sure. as a way to discuss it? In other words, it's an idea. It's the spreading of an idea. It's not the art itself. It's the, it's the idea of the art that has the value. And I guess this is what I was implying with the discussion of the Mona Lisa before. What makes the real Mona Lisa have more value than the knockoff? It's an idea that distinguishes the two. It's not the paint. And the same is true with an NFT. And how does an idea become more valuable? In part, it becomes more valuable by propagating, right? By spreading, by mutating, by, and, and by, in part, derivatives, by imitations coming out, by people emulating it. We made a conscious choice at Punkscape. And this is really with Jaleel's kind of, you know, philosophy, in keeping with Jaleel's philosophy, I think is why we kind of go this direction of... You know what, we're not going to take offense even if somebody is is pretty directly copying, we're going to just say great. That's great. Because it 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 furthers the attention to the idea, the idea of what we are making. The more others are busy creating things out of it, the more they're playing with it. And frankly, I if, if we get into more of my my general theories on on copyright and trademark, I think we've gone a little too far. I'm a big Fan of there's an attorney named Larry Lessig who's pretty famous, and I'm a big fan of a lot of his speeches about about copyright protection. You know, we have a in the United States a constitution that says that it shall you know your copyright shall not be extended indefinitely. But of course, in that's only in theory. In practice, it gets extended indefinitely because every time Mickey Mouse comes up for. Uh, uh threatens to come into the public domain they pass another statute to extend the amount of time to make sure that you that disney can continue to own mickey mouse you know to the end of time and this is a company disney just to use them as to pick on disney a little bit it's a company how did they really get their start you know by taking Grimm's fairy tales and reshuffling them into into animated cartoons right by by they didn't they didn't pay anybody for those original works right they reshuffled existing memes and ideas and concepts and art and reshuffled it into something new. I think that's, that's the nature of how art and society and culture evolves. It's a positive thing. You want. Okay, you here
2: would, so I, I thought that I put you in a corner, but you yeah, have managed to escape. Therefore, it was convincing.
1: Good. Oh, well, yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> uh, my favorite place to punch from is the corner, but I don't. <laughs> we're <all laughs>
0: Just to add to add on this, I would say that I not only agree with you about what gives values, at least in the NFT space, what gives value to a project can many times be the number of copycats. But you mentioned the word derivatives. And many of these derivatives can be sanctioned by the actual creators of the original NFT. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative kind of attack on the original project. It's usually, or in many cases, something that's consciously by both parties adding value to the original project. Yeah, uh, but I've to seen
2: the industry, mm-hmm. how do you explain derivatives?
1: Let me try it this way: um, there is a spectrum that every that everything falls on. Nothing is created from scratch. Nobody creates any work completely from scratch. It's not possible. When you create a work of art. You draw on your experiences with art. You draw on your understanding and, and so forth to create anything. You're not going to invent from point zero. If you were to, presumably, what you'd come up with would be something along the lines of, you know, the cave paintings, right? That that maybe you'd make some, uh, presumably, you'd have to go through the whole history of, of art. And you'd, you'd probably start something with these, you know, buffalo on a cave wall or something like that. But um, we draw on our understanding. So So, on one end of the spectrum is... Just using that understanding, you know, the fact that an artist went to school and learned about light and learned about composition, that draws on all the pieces that they learned from. That's not really, hasn't gotten to the point on the spectrum that we'd call it a derivative, but it is on that spectrum at one end. On the far opposite end is when you just create directly as similar a product as you can to some other existing thing. Um, and I'm I'm so tempted to use names of projects as I as examples, but I'm going to refrain. <laughs> um, but for many projects, you can look when you search for them on OpenSea, for example, there'll be something where there's a you know this, and this is true for Punkscape too, actually. That if you search for Punkscape, you'll see that there's a Punkscape with where somebody has created a collection where it's like one letter off, like Punkscape with two e's at the end or something, and then they just directly took the art from Punkscape and tried to create a collection to confuse. This is where you really get into, you know, is this is this making art or is this fraud, right? Um, to confuse buyers into buying the wrong thing, thinking they were buying the other thing. That's at the far, that's at the far end of. I I would use a word like knockoff, right, or rip uh, at that end. So this is, in other words, a spectrum of directly copying at one end to just general inspiration of artistic principles at the other. Derivatives fall somewhere in between. I think the word derivative is obviously less pejorative than a word like knockoff right derivative doesn't have the same negative connotations as that I think to be a real derivative there's not going to be a hard line that defines when is it too similar or when is it different enough that you really just want to call it its own project I mean is punkscape a derivative of CryptoPunks? is a question that's fair to ask there are no faces on punkscapes there is in our chat right now in the video well, but i'd
0: say yeah. i'd say the one day punk is a derivative
1: i think so too i think Not so too. Not
0: necessarily the punkscapes
1: I, I, and i agree with you but again this is this is sort of a fuzzy line of w- to what extent is it taking inspiration the one day punks are taking a lot of inspiration the the punkscapes take some inspiration from crypto punks they take inspiration from the idea of you know the pixel density for example. CryptoPunks punks are 24 pixels tall. So are the punkscapes. Um, unlike, Instead of having faces, they have landscapes. That's a different concept, but they have landscapes that are in many cases sort of aesthetically inspired by the, you know, crypto punks. I think most people would not call it a derivative because it's, it's so different. But I guess I just want to challenge, you know, one thing that comes to mind is so I think OpenSea, if you look at their terms and conditions, they have uh, some policies against derivatives. And I think, they haven't really thought through the logic of that policy. It doesn't really make a ton of sense if you actually think about what, what is a derivative, right? That's, I guess, just the point I was drawing attention to. Um, but I guess what I would say is a derivative should, ought to bring something else to the table. I, I would tend personally to define derivative as something similar enough that you, if you knew about the thing that it's derived from, you'd be able to recognize it. Um, but different enough that it doesn't confuse the, uh, buyer in looking at one versus the other, but again, I just made up that definition. So I don't know that that's a
2: real one. Can I ask you another question? Sure. It's what we're here. Okay. for? Okay. Therefore, let's say I, I buy an image of, um, boy, for example, Okay. and, uh, somebody copies it and I would say, oh, well, okay. Um, I'll try to fix this. I will contact the uh, original artist and ask him to draw um, a girl in the same picture with a boy. Can I do that? Would that be a derivative? I want to understand your question. You buy a painting. Is this an NFT or a painting? Or what did you buy here? An image of a boy.
1: An image of a boy.
2: And, an NFT. Ah, okay. You buy an NFT. And somebody copies it. Okay, And I get to know that it's being copied. Can I contact the original artist once I have the the ownership, right? And he can check whether I am the owner and ask him, first of all, I need to find him. Is it possible? Secondly, can I ask him to um, change somehow the image? I gave you the example of adding a girl in the picture.
1: Okay, so I think what you're asking, so I, I understand your question a little bit differently now. One is, this is about immutability of an NFT, right? Is it possible yeah. to change an NFT? I guess there's a couple parts to that. Is it possible to change an NFT after it's already been minted? And secondly, is that something that requires the, uh, you know, the original minting party to do or, or what's required for that?
2: Is yeah, that- yeah,
1: yeah. And, um you know the classic the classic thing about lawyers right you ask us a yes no question we're going to give you a, the answer it depends right <laughs> um this is definitely an it depends question first of all where is the art let me start by that detail the answer when you buy an nft where is the actual data of the art stored there is not a single answer to that question there are multiple answers depending on the nft Art can be stored on chain in some cases. That's not the usual case, though, because it is a lot of data typically for art. But it does happen for some projects. Art can be stored in a decentralized, for example, IPFS is a, is a decentralized service that hosts files. So that's the most common way. Again, not the only way um, is that the actual imagery, the data of the art is stored on IPFS and what the NFT is holding is not the image, but a pointer, something that tells, that, that essentially points to the location of where the art is, right? So how can you change that after the fact? You can, you, you maybe can, or you maybe can't. Some pe- sometimes people use the term whether or not the metadata is locked, okay? Can the metadata be changed? And I'll use Punkscape as an example, because um, I think it's helpful to this. We typically like the idea, generally speaking, for any NFT project, for the metadata to be locked. It adds value to the end user to know that the creator can't touch this ever again. They can't change it on me. I do not want them to change it. it with punkscapes in particular, but with a lot of projects, there are often, there's often reason not to lock the, the, the metadata immediately. It may turn out that there's a problem. For example, one of the things that NFT projects have to do right after they launch often is look at the, make sure that nobody has a claim about intellectual property in it, particularly when you're looking at a 10,000 collection and there's lots of art or, you know, there's all, you, you want to make sure that there's no legal claim with respect to particular ones. If you've locked the metadata, not, there's not much you can do about it. If you haven't locked it, you might be able to do something about it. Um, in the case of punkscapes, It it was sort of a very close call for Jaleel, whether to to lock the metadata or not. I think the way he would put it these days is he basically was about to, he wanted to make sure a couple things were all right before he did, but now the plan has changed. And and I think in retrospect, he's very glad he didn't lock it because, for example, you're seeing in the background, and this is just an example, but the background on my video here is these animated versions of the um, punkscapes. I'm sorry, let me see if I can move this so that you can see it better. And I know that the podcast is audio only, so this isn't fantastic for, um, oh, let's, let me just share my screen, if that's all right. Can you see that all right? So what I'm showing off, and I know this is audio, is I'm showing off the static punkscape that, that is what the person bought, and below that, an animated version that will soon be released as part of the same NFT. And I can do this for, I can show off the versions of this for any of the 10,000 different different punkscapes. I'm, I'm not doing this as an advertisement, or, or I'm sorry if it comes across that way. I'm doing this to show a concept here. So why is it useful that the metadata isn't locked for this? These animated versions of the same art, if you look at, for example, OpenSea's metadata definition, they have a field for an animated URL. They have a field for a static image URL. There weren't animated punkscapes at the time of launch. There are now, or there will be soon. And so it is nice, the idea of we want to populate and and add these as an option, as a display option for different interfaces based on how people want to use them. It wouldn't be possible to do that if the metadata were locked. So back to your question, is it possible to go back to the original artist and say, will you change this? In the case of most NFT projects, uh, first, you're going to have to overcome the hurdle of tracking down who created it. That's not typically so hard, but it isn't necessarily certain very often of course people will have websites and emails and so on promoting projects so it's not so hard to find who made a project if it has any ongoing development whether or not the project is locked or not it is something for example in punkscapes case that we want to do we want to lock the, lock the metadata but we want to be really sure that it's in final form when we do if that makes sense and that does mean that there's an element of trust involved because you are trusting the project to you know not go crazy and sabotage their own project there was an example of that actually there's there have been nft projects where you know the where the uh founders essentially played a joke on their buyers i don't know if that joke is the right word but destroyed their own work so it is possible when when metadata is not locked it is possible to do that and it is there is an element of trust with a project when when metadata hasn't been locked yet. Now, in the case of Punkscape, if you know Jaleel, it's not a thing I worry about. He's a he's a guy I happen to have a lot of respect for. There, it is the la- I, I would be more shocked by um, him doing that than you know news that he went on a on a serial killing spree or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's 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 a very unlikely scenario for him to sabotage his own project. So I, I'm not particularly worried about it. But we still want to remove that element of trust right from the project. So that is still a goal. I don't know. Does that answer your question?
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, yes, you did. Oh, okay. thank you. Sure.
0: Let's talk about the main licenses that exist as of this day for the main projects that we're seeing being launched and being successful, and maybe speak about what we like, what we don't.
1: Um. Sure. So there are. I think of there being really three main categories, but obviously there are all different ways of structuring um, structuring licensing rights. You know, in terms of what you are actually owning. So, when I think of licensing and NFT projects, I immediately think of the Board Eight Yacht Club first because they have really done this amazing job of making their NFT a brand, right? Where the Licensing rights are very central to what they're selling. And, you know, we were talking in terms of art before and thinking of NFTs as art. That's not the only way to think of NFTs. And I don't think it necessarily has to be the only way to think of NFTs. Even NFTs that have, certainly it's not the only way to think of them when you're talking about broader applications of NFTs. Because remember, NFTs don't have to just be JPEGs. The deed to your home could be an NFT in the future. that that will take us down a different road to talk about (laughs) but when we're talking about these kind of art-ish projects we've seen how certain projects have really made their project a brand where the licensing rights you know people want the rights to say okay if i own the nft does that mean that i can make shirts with that nft on it and sell those shirts right and and does it does it mean that someone else cannot make shirts with my NFT on it, or at least that I would have some rights as against them if they were to. So one of the decision-making things that has to happen within any NFT project is decisions on what limitations, this is really about restrictions more than it is enabling, right? Because you can, you know, if, if, you, if you simply kind of say it's open for all to use, you're really saying. That's sort of the default, anyways, right? Anybody can do whatever they want with anything. Nobody has any rights to this. Let's say that's one possible possibility. I think of um, what's the name of the project? Cryptodes, for example, which uses the Creative Commons license, I believe. I don't want more to. Mis-
0: nouns would be any of them. More obvious one, I guess.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So I just wanted to double check what I was saying was correct. Yeah. Cryptodes uses the no rights reserved license under the Creative Commons, meaning go wild, right? <laughs> that's an oversimplification, but it's essentially saying anyone can do anything with it. Um, why would they want that? Really ties into our earlier conversation about maybe, maybe more derivatives adds value to the source material, and that's the the philosophy. In the case of Cryptodes, it worked, I think, pretty well that idea Mm -hmm. Uh, that the no rights reserved under you know the creative commons approach to that uh is very popular in nft communities it's not the only way to do it it does restrict a project because the other thing that's happening with certain projects is they start looking at oh can we do marketing deals with companies can we get a deal with Disney, can we get a deal with some, you know, as these projects become big, where can we get a deal where we're selling somebody the rights to it so that they can do a television, you know, an animated television show out of it or something like that? And of course, the lawyers who come in for that project are going to want to make sure if they're doing an animated TV show that they have rights, not only to do the show, but they don't want, they're not going to be comfortable. That world will typically not be comfortable. With the idea of making a show where all of the characters are under a Creative Commons No Rights Reserved approach, right, where anybody can just um, use them however they want to, so it restricts a project to use this kind of a licensing scheme. I think it's called this, like the CC Zero. I can pull this up for you if you
0: like. Yeah, I've I'll link it in the show notes because I was checking the nouns
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's the the CC Zero. Yeah, um, is the No Rights. It's a it's a form of public domain. Creative Commons has done, I think, some really wonderful things for the world of intellectual property law, by the way, just by making accessible various approaches to licensing schemes and standardizing things, making it easy for people to recognize what type of licensing structure a particular thing has. They've been around for some time. They're not new, if you've never heard of Creative Commons, they're not new to uh, crypto space. So that decision, for example, on a project, should this be a CC0 like crypto or is it something where we want to try to make money off of somebody doing, a, let's say, a, a TV show and we want to make sure that their lawyers are comfortable? That's one of the, that's one of the starting you know, decisions. A lot of NFT projects, I think it's fair to say, have not even you know, made clear <laughs> what the licensing structure is. Our licensing structure with PunkScape is not in its final form. Right now, if you own an NFT of punkscape, you have a, a non-exclusive license to use it and to make commercial products from it. But it is, it is something that we want to announce quite a bit more for. And there's a couple of steps we have to do before we do. Those steps that we're taking, and again, I have to speak in general terms because we haven't announced yet the details of this, but those steps, the goal of them is to add value to the holders of the punkscapes. That's the, that's the, the overarching goal well, with, you know, with anything we're doing with the project. But um, I don't think there's a single right answer to how to structure the rights on NFT projects in general. Part, partly, it really depends what the sort of final form is. If the goal is to be as famous as possible, as everywhere as possible, as ubiquitous as possible, something like a no rights reserved approach has its has very strong arguments. Where it limits you is if, if the goal is a TV show or something, you know, Mila Kunis, for example, did that. Um, um, I, what was the name of her stoner cats? Is that the name mm-hmm. of her project?
0: I don't know if it's hers. I think, it, yeah. So project.
1: stoner cats is the name of theirs. I have not actually looked up the licensing scheme, but I'm willing to bet if I were to, <laughs> let's see here. They have the terms of service facts. Let's see a stoner cat. I have it on my screen here. A stoner cat's NFT gets you access to watch exclusive content from the st- Okay. Are they going to sell you the rights? No, they're maybe just not going to tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, somewhere they might have terms and conditions, but I suspect because their end goal was to make a cartoon, it's going to be much more restrictive. They're not going to say that you own all rights to the uh, the artwork based on your NFT. And it's reasonable for them to do. Sometimes people talk about, I'm not trying to defend Stoner Cats in particular, but it, sometimes people talk about oh when you buy an nft what are you really getting the norm in the traditional art world if we go back to the Mona Lisa is not to own the intellectual property rights to it though that that has been the norm for a long time so this idea of like we are conveying intellectual property rights along with the art is is a a new you know a relatively new feature of nft artwork over traditional art world.
0: So said another way because when I started looking at for example the doodles were one of the projects I invested in early on and when I read the license I was quite I felt it was quite restrictive because it's the kind of license where you only have the right to display for personal use the the doodle that you buy And you can use it commercially up to 100,000 in profit, which again is very vague, but basically what it tells me is that I cannot use it commercially, say within my software products if I'm selling them on a worldwide basis because it's too limiting and it wouldn't allow me to to use it to the max. But But why, why would they impose this on you? Because of what Hearsay just said, I think it ties into that. To the ability to commercialize
1: yeah they may have and i don't know i don't know the answer as to doodles in particular or even actually wait here is their terms of service i'm just pulling it up mm-hmm. i don't know the answer as to that particular project but the logic of why they might try to restrict it is because they may want to control larger commercial uses of their intellectual property as a project they may want to create. I keep using the example of a of an animated show because it's sort because, of logical. Uh, but that's
0: actually what they're building. So I think it's oh, a great it? example. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah. So 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 that's exactly why they're doing that. They they're not going to be able to get uh, a television show made with characters and then distributed when the ownership of the rights to those characters is distributed across who knows who on the web. Licensing the the these those episodes is going to be something that they will need more control over in order to give distributors confidence that the distributor is getting what they're paying for.
0: So when, when you buy an NFT, just for my dad's and for the listeners benefit, you buy like an image with a particular background, uh, usually in a square format or if its punkscape and a different landscape. But what these licenses are giving you is to just display that's literally that image. You cannot even change the background. So that's, gives you that license, to, to that right to display it, while they retain the right, for example, to make a 3D version of it and use that same character kind in a movie or to make a sculpture of it, whatever they want to do as a project, as a founding team that owns the copyright as well.
2: That should mean that the value
0: goes down. Depends, because as a project, the income and the brand is making the tokens also usually more expensive.
2: Therefore are you saying that they are sort of advertising your doodle? mm mm-hmm. no, eh? Yeah,
1: I mean if I let me try another example. Let's say the I The buy... Apes.
0: I think we should get into the board apes because they they were they're loaded as an example of doing it right in a commercial sense.
1: Yeah, and I mean, people still disagree about. Let's pull up theirs. I'm looking at Doodles. Um, how they what they're like. I have seen debate. I have seen people, you know, from the board Ape community who are unhappy with their licensing structure. But overall, um, they're definitely lauded more often than they're than people complain about them. Here's their terms. Let's see ownership. All right, let me pull this up on my screen for to share with you. If that's all right. Hold on a moment.
0: For example, as we record this today, Adidas are launching a collaboration. I, I, was it with the Bored Apes as well? Where they have the logos of the NFTs printed on like a hoodie or uh, sneakers. And in that way, they can commercialize it worldwide. Whereas if it wasn't within such a license, I would be able to sue them if they used my character even on merchandise
1: yeah see this is a much more restrictive if you look at word Ape Yacht Club's uh licensing scheme this is significantly mm-hmm. more restrictive than than something like the cryptodes, right um yeah, they are giving sure. you can you can you see my screen here
0: no we're, we can't we oh just, I'm sorry uh and, and I'll link a few examples of these licenses and the show notes for for the listeners to Take a look at them. I think it's very interesting if you're buying NFTs to really know the license that you're buying.
1: I mean, it is for some people and it isn't for others. I think with Punkscape, there's a general ethos of we want to set this up in a way that gives as much as possible to the holder in part because it's the type and not every project is set up for the same goals. Uh, and I'm not saying this as a knock on other ones. If your goal is to make a show, like a TV show, you're you know, that doesn't mean that it'll have less value or more value than a project, which is about creating, you know, a really successful meme essentially out of it. Um, if you own, um, you know, we're seeing litigation right now over, you know, Marvel studios, right. With the, uh, with the, with the family of, uh, uh, what's his name? Stan Lee is, is in a fight over ownership of the characters of Marvel. Now that's a situation in which obviously Disney has added a lot of value to the Marvel characters, we're doing this podcast today. As I think Spider-Man is coming out today, right? <laughs> Huge bil- billions of dollars. Spider-Man. What is Spider-Man worth? Right, enormous amounts of money. Is it worth a lot less because the comic book didn't say when they gave you the comic, we are giving you the rights to the characters? Everybody who holds it, like that's an example of how like a centralized ownership of the rights can add a ton of value. Those early Spider-Man comics are worth a lot of money even though you don't have any rights to Spider-Man by owning one, right? But they're worth a lot. And they're worth a lot more, probably, because of things like multi, you know, these, these multi-billion-dollar deals involving Disney and the Marvel characters. That adds value to it. So it, there's not a single way to, um, to it, you know, the end point being, let's say, exposure and attention and interest by society in something. There's no single road to getting
0: there. I think when I mentioned, just sorry to interrupt, um, no, no, when man. I mentioned that it's important to have a look at what you're buying, first of all, and I know Punkscapes didn't have the license when they launched, and that was one of the things that I looked into. But there were other factors than that made me buy anyway. But well, yeah, I'd,
1: I'd love to say more yeah. on Punkscape licensing very, very <laughs> soon. There's some announcements coming really soon. So I, I will soon be in a position to chat more extensively about that. Yeah. But
0: sure. uh, so one thing is that I want to see the license because I want to know if the team has done their homework on that aspect, amongst others, you know, mm-hmm. amongst other aspects. And secondly, I think it depends on how you plan to use the NFT itself. You know, so if I'm have, I have I own a software company, so if I want to maybe put some of these NFTs in the advertising for my software, then I need to make sure that I can use them. If not, I run into trouble later. And if that's an important part of my decision, I'm going to think twice about it. Therefore, it reduces your value. No, if, if I make a, a point and I know that I cannot use that as a, to advertise my product, then I'm not going to buy it. It's as simple as that. Yeah, this was my point. If there
2: are a number of restrictions, it can reduce your value. Okay, they can advertise and maybe give it more promotion uh, across the whole world. But in reality, if there are a lot of restrictions, your value goes down. Therefore, if they give you some six pages of small print that nobody reads, or if, even if they read, they cannot understand because you try to understand the first paragraph. When you arrive at the last paragraph, you forget what you read in the first paragraph. Therefore, these are these are a lot of things that that you know people who would like to invest would like to understand. Sure, and it's
1: it's often the case that lawyers. Um... Sort of turn off their brain when writing up the terms of things. You know, I I remember an incident some years back with Facebook, where uh, Facebook took a lot of heat from uh, new terms and conditions that they issued, in which which seemed to imply that they own all the fo- the photography that you post on their service, not that they own it exclusively. In other words, they it seemed to imply. They own the rights to the photos of all of your family, right? And 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 many people reacted like, "Oh, really, Facebook? <laughs> that's your that's your new position." Um, and they quickly walked that back. Sometimes lawyers will, you know, my background is as a litigator, not a transactional attorney, uh, historically, and we have maybe a slightly different philosophy than uh, transactional attorneys. But sometimes transactional attorneys, being that category of attorneys that draft up these things, don't necessarily have to face the consequences properly of people not liking what they drafted, right? And so it's certainly the case that it's a, it's great when people read the terms. I think it's great that you care about the terms when you're looking at an NFT project, more people should. It is something that projects should give attention to. I don't believe, however, that it is necessarily the case the case that any particular scheme is inherently superior to a different scheme for the rights on a project. There are simply different goals for different projects and it depends on what the goals are and what they're what they're trying to accomplish and what's right to get them there is more the way that i look at it if you're getting and that was why i was giving the example of you know the how a centralized a centralized thing that you don't own any of like us like spider-man right is still something that can be incredibly valuable if the one if whoever owns it and the merchandise that they make out of it is if they have added a ton of value to it as disney will with the spider-man movie you know you're right if you get if you are i look at right you know in law school the way that they typically talk about property in general property rights uh, there's a classic metaphor that is and i say this is one of those it's classic in the sense of we really are talking about centuries of attorneys using this metaphor (laughs) i think blackstone used it is that is that property is a bundle of a bundle of sticks right it's a, it's a bundle of sticks tied together with a string. Imagine it that way. Uh, it's not a single thing. When you own something, we like to talk about ownership as though you either own something or you don't, right? But that isn't the way ownership of anything works. There are all different rights to property you may have with your home. You have the right to enter your home, leave your home. Uh, you have the right to make certain improvements. But if you do certain things to your home, the city will come along and say, no, you can't do that, right? Right. If the city may be able to enter your property to check the gas line, they may be able to enter to to do, in other words, things like rights to enter, future rights, contingent rights on the property. Ownership is a more complex concept than you own it or you don't. And that's true with all property. It's true with NFTs too. It's a bundle of rights. And so it's, it's very sophisticated for you to take the view of, I want to know exactly which twigs I get in my bundle when I buy this thing. That's a more sophisticated investor approach to looking at a thing you're acquiring. And it's a more sophisticated approach with a project to take into consideration what are we selling and really think about it from a right standpoint. It's, I, I certainly think on both sides of the equation, people could do more. NFT projects should take it more seriously and buyers ought to take a look at it and see is this something that they're thinking about the only thing i'm objecting to or disagreeing with you with uh, in particular joseph in particular on <laughs> is the idea that there is any single superior rights structure i don't have a problem with for example supposing uh, i'm going to keep using this sort of example but supposing disney does a marvel nft series where you can buy nfts of the characters in the marvel universe they could do that do we have any doubt how that would be structured right that you know is there there's not much doubt that they that the restrictions would be grand on on the owners of those nfts that you would have very limited commercial use you would probably have none but can you say with certainty that such an nft would be valueless i don't think you could I mean this is a world of collectibles and and people might very well want to collect such a thing so I I don't think there's a single solution I think when you're a small project when you're not Disney you know punkscape isn't Disney you do well to give your customer more <laughs> right so that's kind of let me, of philosophy let me ask
0: a question because sure. this I was chatting with a friend recently who was doing sports uh NFT trading and the question arose whether For every nft that they launch like fantasy football nfts do they need to ask the the player in question to use his likeness on an nft card how does that work do you know
1: um there was a lawsuit some years ago between the um i'm trying to remember what the football game was the really popular uh, 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 nfl football game what's the main one madden uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and Madden came out with a video game that let you in one of the modes, so, you know, put together a team of players, including based on players that weren't even in the league anymore. Like you could use historical mm-hmm. um, players and there and they paid for the rights to the current players in the sense that there was some uh, there was some mechanism to Pay the licensing rights for the current players because the current players sign contracts that give the teams the ownership rights of you know likeness rights and so forth. So that those can be those can be shared, but the former players retain all of their rights with respect to use of likeness. The historical players, those contracts, those old ones, didn't give away the right to uh, you know once you're no longer in the NFL, and so those players filed what's called a collective action, not a class action, a collective action. I may have some of the facts of the details of this wrong because this is some years ago. But collective action, the difference is a class action is when you have a kind of a definition of the people suing rather than the specific names. A collective action is where it's still particular people, but the only way it's distinguished by a regular lawsuit is that it's quite a few of them, right? (laughs) So these former NFL players brought a collective action and they were alleging this is a massive infringement on use of Likeness, right? And I I think that ended in a settlement, so it doesn't really directly answer your question, but it does highlight the notion that they certainly had a viable enough claim to get to the point of a reasonable settlement. That's particular, though. Remember that your face, your likeness, you have additional rights to that are that are different uh, than if we're talking about other forms of intellectual property. There's another. Can I give one more lawsuit example that comes to mind? Mm -hmm. Do you remember the TV show The Munsters?
0: i haven't watched that um
1: it was an old here i can pull this up i'm gonna get the term wrong yeah this is a 1964 sitcom it was about like a family it had like a frankenstein the great uh fred gwynn i guess this guy (laughs) this actor (laughs) the monsters was this it's kind of like the adams family it was like a 1960s Mm -hmm. very similar show to the adams family yeah and all of the monsters on the show see here he was in character he looked like the Frankenstein monster
0: mm-hmm.
1: you can see this on my screen yeah all of the characters on that show in character were dressed up as monsters right but there was one exception one character from that show who did not have that let me see. I'm trying to find a picture of the fa- oh here we go here's a picture of the monsters do you guys remember this show at all
0: I remember the Adams family which seems ah uh, yes this is forever. like the other the other one
1: so Uh there was a use of likeness case with respect to this show related to a slot machine you know they did slot machines based on old shows they licensed a slot machine and and the show maybe owned the frankenstein monster i'm just showing a picture for those listening we're Uh looking now at a picture of the of the characters on the show and you can see that they're all sort of monstrous except one of the concepts on that show is that there was one character Who's like your normal, she's like a normal person who's in the mm-hmm. mix of these. And and she's on there too. She brought a use of likeness case because she's saying, hey, that's me. That's not the character. That's just mm-hmm. me. And so I have separate rights to my face. I mean, we're getting into just use of likeness is its own separate intellectual property area, at least in the, the United States. I, I really don't know outside of the United mm-hmm. States in terms of likeness laws.
2: But here say coming back to the Mona Lisa, if I buy the Mona Lisa, the original that is, I can do whatever I want with it. There are no restrictions. You still don't Unless own the intellectual. I would be burnt on the stake if I destroy it. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> okay. Um But uh, yeah. you know, with all these restrictions, things get complicated. But I so mean So can I, so can I. What I'm saying is I can I
1: can I don't, let me, let me, let me disclose something to both of you. I'm going to reveal, I don't own the Mona Lisa. This should come as no surprise to you. (laughs) (laughs) And although I don't own the Mona Lisa though, because it's in the public domain, I can use it. I can use the artwork from it. I can, I can put it in my, uh, you know, products. I can, I can, I can paint it on the side of a billboard. I can do those kinds of things because it's in the public domain. In other words, the, the critical thing is not that can you use the art, it's can anybody come after you and say, hey, you owe me money
2: now that you've done that? Can anybody sue you for using the art? Exactly. If I buy the original, nobody can come chasing me anywhere, or suing me for the rights, because I am the owner. My point with the Mona Lisa is simply
1: that it doesn't matter whether you own the Mona Lisa or not with respect to whether you can start
2: selling Mona Lisa t-shirts, let's say. No, no, no. But coming back to the original point, if I buy uh, an original painting, I can do whatever I want with it. The artist, the original artist, the inventor, whatever, cannot put any restrictions.
0: You cannot. You cannot. Like we've seen, that coming to the derivative art, for example, he he maintains the intellectual property as far as I know on, on the the copyright. No
1: it depends but it's certainly the case that you can buy art and not have the right to use it in several ways it's certainly the case but that would put down the price well consider for example i don't know what's your favorite movie let me use an example this way gladiator okay so gladiator gladiator is a work of art it's a great movie right we love gladiator Uh, (laughs) what's his name uh Russell I've got to Crow. be able to reference Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Russell Crow, okay. so let's call was Gladiator world, a work of art. True. I can go and buy a DVD of Gladiator. I own the DVD. I have certain rights with respect to that DVD and certain rights I don't have. I have the right to watch it, to use it in that sense. But if I want to, for example, put it on a projector and charge people to watch it with me, I am now violating, violating the the scope of the rights i have so i own the dvd but i can't charge people to watch it that's no, very i common.
2: understand all this no no i understand no, i know you do
1: i'm just i'm just saying ownership of a piece of art doesn't mean that you can do i'm,
2: I'm disagreeing with the central premise that ownership of a piece of art means you can do anything you want with it, no, it, no, it no, not i'm talking it. i'm talking not about rights i'm talking about a painting a van gogh for example, or the Mona Lisa, which is a good example. If I buy the original, I don't think that anyone can come chasing me because I did that or the other with it. No, of course not. Of course, if I I destroy it, I I would become a public enemy because I have destroyed (laughs) the most famous work of art. But other than that, I retain all the rights and I have to pay a lot of money for that.
0: Because it's in the public domain.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 principally because it's in the public domain. But if you think about it, if you buy a historic building, let's say, I know you want to go with paintings, but I I, I suspect that even destroying it, there might be restrictions on that. In other words, historic buildings can take on landmark status, where suddenly the owner w- who will get some tax benefit by it being a landmark status will also also comes with. New limitations on what they can do, and limitations on whether or not they can tear it down. True,
2: true, true. But there are no complications of rights and images and all that normally. No, you know, but the owner, I they have you, to pay you.
1: I suspect if you burn the Mona Lisa, you might inspire. No, to no, uh, no, no. pass some laws. <laughs>
2: that's, <on the> <laughs> no, no, that's true, but let's not go to that extreme. But sure. if you buy a house, um, yes, a house of character or historical castle. Um, you're not allowed to pull it down yeah because it's protected but other than that you can ask anybody to come in and and uh, stop anyone from coming in because it's your property there are no complications of rights and uh, attached etc now we're entering into a situation where things can get a little bit complicated because you need to do a lot of searching and studying before you acquire an NFT. I mean, I would disagree with that. So you're getting into an area, which is no, no, I'm challenging you, I'm challenging you on purpose so that oh, um, sure. whoever now, is interested would fully understand the implications.
1: Let me challenge back the premise that when you own a house, though, you simply get full control over who can enter, who can't enter your ownership rights, that's certainly not true, right? You have quite a bit of freedom on that. But there are laws around things like eminent domain. Governments can uh, seize your property and, and pay you you know just compensation in exchange. Uh let's say because they're building a railroad line through that area. Governments can do that. Uh similarly, the gov- you know, we use the example of the, you know, the guy who checks no, that, me no, no, the gas. No, right no,
2: no, to- no, no. It's not a no no. I'm sorry. It's not a good example because you're mentioning um uh, situations where, um, the general, the, the good of the general public is at stake. I'm not talking about those situations. I'm talking about other business rights. Sure. But
1: okay. So I let's forget the general public. I'm the business next door and I own my building next door, but because my driveway is landlocked, I may uh, have an easement rights across your property to get in and out of my business. It doesn't have to be the right of the general public, even with a house, in other words, Rights get complicated real fast, right? (laughs) That's all I'm that's all I'm asserting. This is back to that bundle of sticks idea. It's certainly the case that um, with real estate, we have a long and detailed history that give us the contours of those rights that give us a lot of comfort about how they play out because we have a lot of experience with it. And we tend to change real estate laws very slowly. There's a reason why. We use words like landlord. It's a very ancient term, right? To call something a landlord and tenant. These are old words. Real estate law tends to draw on very old law as a result. And that and, the, and, the, and it's logical that it would because nobody wants their land to change in terms of their rights too quickly. You want the thing that you own to be the thing that you thought you bought. So it's a, it's an area of law that deliberately, I think very deliberately changes slowly. You have a lot less of that in the world of NFTs. Because these contours, you don't have hundreds of years of, of property law. You know, in the U.S., by the way, we still use common law. There, there is, are cases that are still good law that are common law from England, right, <laughs> that are still citable in the U.S. now. In other words, you can, you can get there are cases, you know, 18th century British cases cited today in, um, in, in the United States in, in property law. But that's one of the only areas of law where, the, where you see that with any frequency. So I think to your point do we have that those same contours and structures for nfts even if the company tells you i mean here's a question that i don't find people ask very often let's say that the nft project has a website and it tells you the the rights structure for the project how do you know that's true (laughs) right we sort of take it as a given well they're the ones that said this you know they're going to be bound by that because that's what their website said or that's what they say on their discord where is the legal structure to enforce these things as true? That um, makes it even
0: worse. There are a lot of questions because, even like when you buy it from OpenSea, are you being bound by the OpenSea terms or by the project terms? And how do I know what the project terms are when they're not in the metadata, for example, of the yeah, um, NFT I'm buying?
1: I'm very interested in projects that work to projects, not just in the crypto space, but in the legal space that aim to sort these kinds of questions out. So these are problems that are, I think, very solvable, but not necessarily solved yet. Right. It's certainly the case. I mean, let's put it this way. Supposing somebody changed the terms on you from when you bought, let's say they had one policy at one point, and they change their policy and they're saying, this applies retroactively to everybody. And your attitude might be, well, can they do that? Right. I already own the thing. Are they allowed to do that? And in fact, who are they? How do I know they are who they are? Right. In, in the crypto space, you can legitimately ask these questions, right? All of that doesn't take form and meaning, you know, there, until courts of law start to get involved, until disputes happen in which, in which courts get involved to start giving us the contours of how this stuff will actually operate. Um, you know, I, I have a, I remember a contracts professor who used to, who used to, I like to say there's three parties to every contract, right? Any contract to be enforceable needs at least three parties, you know, party A making a deal with party B and party C is a court willing to enforce it. If you don't have party C, it's all meaningless, right? You can, you can agree to be bound, but if there's no, if there's no mechanism for addressing resolution, if, if you're not doing what you're supposed to under it, what you've done is sort of meaningless.
2: Well, the problem is that the law courts are struggling to keep up with all these techn- technological developments.
0: Absolutely. Even
2: even with cryptos and now NFTs. Wait till <laughs> you hear about up? I don't
0: know. <laughs> now, hearsay, so you are mentioning those, and I don't think my dad is familiar with the concept. And to me, they seem they're a bigger minefield than crypto, than NFTs. It's just crazy what. What can, you can achieve with a DAO and how the legal uh, terms have to adapt to if they adapt to for for DAOs.
1: Do you want to talk about DAOs a little bit? I'd love to chat about DAOs. If, yeah, I'd love uh, to.
0: I want to see the expression of, on my dad's face. Have you heard me, of DAOs, <laughs> Joseph?
1: Let me, let me put it that
0: no,
2: way. No. no. <laughs> so I'll try to give a, a real quick as soon as i start understanding something of all these developments something else comes up
1: i mean i so a dao just i'll try to be real brief on it a dao is is an acronym right dao meaning decentralized autonomous organization Um, it is a structure it is an approach to organizing economic activity um just like a corporation is a structure, an approach to organizing an e- economic activity, right? DAOs are new and they attempt, and I really do put a lot of emphasis on the word attempt because it is, it is an open question whether or not you can really say there's kind of the full dream of what DAOs aspire to be has been actually realized really by anybody unless the project is an extremely simple project. But the idea of a DAO is some form of decentralized ownership of the organization, where there's sort of some form of direct control over the organization by the token holders. That's the idea. It's a crypto entity. There is a lot of optimism on the one hand. Sometimes I think... Too much optimism about whether or not, you know, about how difficult the problems that DAOs will need to address will be to, to address. On the other hand, I think from the traditional legal community, there's a, there's maybe sometimes too much cynicism. <laughs> sometimes they're tre- that Sometimes you'll see lawyers who take the position of you haven't actually done anything at all with the DAO, right? This is just a just a just maybe a voting mechanism or a, or a bank account shared between, whatever. I do think there's something there. I really do with DAOs. There, there is something there just because we've seen corporate governance issues get somewhat out of hand in recent years. The disparity between uh, executives at companies and what they're, you know, you know these, these um, golden parachutes have gotten so large, particularly for, for CEOs who are of, of failing companies, that I, I see DAOs in some sense as being born of pushback to these traditional corporate structures we'll see how successful they are at that but that's the general idea the idea is is some form of direct governance there are those who take the view that maybe you can just have everyone vote on everything and everyone have direct control of everything i'm not so optimistic as that i don't think that i think there are benefits of having uh core groups right uh, i think there are benefits sometimes of having internal secrets to an organization but, though maybe i think that's gotten too far in the case of the traditional corporate world but certainly the case that to be competitive entities need to have probably some intellectual property kinds of some some uh I don't mean intellectual property some some um trade secrets sometimes you don't want everyone knowing what you're about to do and and it's more profitable for everybody to not know just yet what you're about to do that's hard to do with the Dow because you know the the holders are distributed and so everything has to be transparent so everybody has that information Enforcement mechanisms for disputes are hard to deal with for DAOs, which is to the point we were talking earlier about how are courts going to get into this stuff. But they're trying, and it's beginning. We're learning. We're going to see. We're going to see this stuff. Wisconsin, you know, passed a law recently recognizing DAOs as a legal entity. You're going to start having uh, a body of case law that tries to figure out how to do this. Um, I'm just fascinating, but fascinated by it as a development because was it Wisconsin or Wyoming? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I we're, we're all, right? You're, you're correct. I get my W states mixed up. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, what are we
2: cat- talking about exactly here? I mean, uh, you're talking about shareholders
0: being a directors as well. Can I just tie it in with, with NFTs? Because NFTs can be a token, like one of these tokens for shareholding within a DAO as well. That's how I, I personally got into DAOs. Sure. But, and I, yeah. I,
1: I was using the word token, but I wasn't. I wasn't limiting it to non fungible yeah. or fungible token. Uh, I'm using the word token broadly. You could, it could a, a DAO could be structured either way. Part of the exuberance around DAOs, and there is a certain degree of exuberance around them as well, right? Is the fact that we've seen some DAOs launch, issue a token, a governance token, and have that token do well on the on the open market. So one of the big things, of course, driving this is people want you know, people want to make money. <laughs> so when somebody launches a DAO, one of the big appeals is like, okay, will, will ownership of these tokens be beneficial to me as somebody holding them just from the standpoint that I can sell them for more than I got them for? That's one way of looking at what's happening and certainly a big part of the equation. But another part is, can these tokens solve governance issues of organizations? And they offer some advantages to doing so that are exciting also. I, the ability to transfer your shares in a totally frictionless way is pretty great. It's not so easy to transfer shares of voting rights in a corporation. It's not always so easy. And so this that frictionlessness is, I think, one of the big features. The ability for global participation in an entity is an interesting feature of a dao that it has as an advantage over other forms over stru- other structures potentially there are many countries that if you live in your um, your, your ability to buy shares in a startup <laughs> you know if you're living in one i don't you know if you're living in one part of the world and you're trying to buy shares of a very small obscure startup in some other part of the world that's not going to be so easy with traditional structures Maybe you can mail them money and they'll give you a certificate of some sort. Maybe I, I mean, and then and then how will it, you be sure that you've got what you're supposed to have, right? Anyways. Or how how, how will you be sure that it's going to be honored at all? With DAOs, this, you know, they have a potential advantage of you can potentially move certain decision making directly under smart contracts so that the shares actually directly control certain decisions now mind you you can't do that to all decisions unless your company or your entity is incredibly simple as a concept
2: No, this a- is why i asked you whether um, it's in a form of shareholding or directorship as well because if you take also director's decisions then uh, i I'm, uh, i cannot imagine the situation where it can work Unless, as you are saying, it's really simple. I think that these models can work, for example, for soccer clubs. Imagine Manchester United owned by all its supporters, for example, or the majority of them. Yeah, I,
1: I mean, I think there's different ways to use them. So is it is it replacing the role of the shareholder with the token holder? Typically, I think that's how they're more often approached that that's that's most that's more what's happening um but it it doesn't have to be that and all, and there's definitely entities out there that are looking at replacing if directors we, yeah what
0: about like the constitution though which is a good example i think of a simple one, huh? I, I know that kind of failed, but you
1: know, it's funny because I own some shares of that, but I don't know much about that example. <laughs> um, I I, uh, I haven't dug into them about how it's structured. I just love the idea that like I had to get a, I had to be a part of this,
0: but like the general idea is that a group of people wanted to. I think there's like a kind of political overtone to it undertone. Sorry, that's like we want to go against the big guy, and this is a very good example uh, of a lot of people, yeah.
1: I think another example that where it works really well is when you think about software, right? I, if you're talking about a company that's really, truly, their product is a piece of software. And especially if that piece of software is a piece of software with very defined parameters. You know, let's say I, I write a piece of software that is a decentralized application. It takes in widget, you know, blue widgets, and it pumps out red widgets. And these are digital blue widgets and digital red widgets. And that's my service. And I charge a fee when I convert your blue widget to a red widget, you know, digitally. Let's say that's my company and that's all that it does. Now, there are still going to be decisions to be made. I have to set a price for when I change your blue widget to a red widget. I have to, maybe I have some limited numbers of, of, because these are NFTs, limited numbers of red widgets and blue widgets, and I need to maintain pools of the two so that I can do the exchange. This is sort of a very abstract concept I've described, but it's also not so different than a lot of DeFi that I'm describing, right? Um, You start to see how one could imagine the parameters of those decisions. For example, the price, the, uh, the size of the pools, things like that. Are things that you could imagine delegating over to the shareholders directly as as decision points. Who owns this? Who gets to decide it? The shareholders do, and I'm going to use more accurately the token holders do, and the token holders can can let's say vote and uh, and determine those parameters. We found that they tend not to vote, right, and that the better, more successful DAOs are ones that have come up with effective means of delegating votes um, or, or systems for delegation of votes because I'm not
2: surprised.
1: Right. I mean, you know, I live in the U.S.
2: Nobody votes here. <laughs> right. The, the thing is, here say, that if I have a, a very big company, a very successful big company and I see a rival uh, coming up, you know, um, challenging me, I can buy the majority of his tokens and decide to put it down. Through bad decisions, for example, on purpose, because the directorship would be in the hands of the shareholders, which doesn't make sense really, because the directors are there being the experts in the field of the, uh, you know, um, where the company does business to take the best decisions in the interest of the shareholders. How can you get all these shareholders taking each and every, you know, managerial decision by themselves i cannot imagine that
1: i agree with you i in a sense i don't believe that DAOs are a panacea that sort of solves all issues of corporate governance i do believe that you still like you know depending on the needs of the of the particular business there are going to be decisions in which you want specialized Directors with obligations to the best interests of the entity. There are going to be circumstances in which you need the ability to pivot quickly. You know, you need the ability to make decisions quickly. Um, there are certain decisions, though. If we go to my blue widget, red widget example, in which you may be able to give control directly back to your shareholders, and it may be a better model. And the and in which control via smart contract has advantages. So I'm not suggesting that um you know DAOs are just going to wipe out traditional corporations and suddenly we're not going to you know we're going to dump a couple hundred years of corporate law in favor of you know um it's 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 nothing like that but it is a new way to experiment around with the delegation of decision making of 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 an entity that is engaged in economic activity and and it definitely can solve certain problems. I think in particular the ability to freely trade your shares is 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 quite a feature. And the ability to open up to markets that traditionally have not been able to participate because of geographic and government um you know difficulties is is quite a feature. So I'm just interested in it because I think we're seeing it in its very early genesis form, you know, as a call pack. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the aesthetic of pixel art and why it, what it says about our time, right? What does pixel art have to say about this? And it kind of feels to me like DAOs are pixel art of, of future governance structure. They truly are in their early infin- uh, uh, infancy. And they're learning their lessons, you know, step by step, but there is a reason for them and a benefit to them. And, there, and we have seen these extreme abuses in the corporate world that people are pushing back against that is inspiring people to experiment with these kinds of models. So I think, I think they're um, it's just an area that's fun to watch. Basically we're, we're, yeah, I'll leave it at that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think well, yeah, we can wrap it up here because we can not go on forever, but I think Vanating, Uh, from this episode. I hope that the listeners' uh, curiosity has been piqued and I'll try to help out by leaving a few relevant links of what we've been talking about, licenses, DAOs. And actually I've written a lot about all this stuff on my blog, so that will be handy. And yeah, I think me and my dad will definitely continue the discussion over the next the days, weeks, months, whatever, <laughs> now that it started. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Hearsay, for, for the conversation. It was really interesting.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, it was nice to chat with both of you.
0: Thanks, Hearsay.
2: <laughs> we challenged you, but uh, yeah, I mean, we found somebody who's really an expert.
0: I also I also want to thank you for the work you're doing with Punkscape. Uh we, ha- we didn't have a chance, unfortunately, to get into that, but you're doing no, some great that, work. We're,
1: we're having a very exciting time with it right now. We just hit the 1,000 ETH milestone. That's There's true. a lot of attention to banners happening right now. There's a We just launched a new builder tool. We have enough announcements coming in the near future that we're now in the talks behind the scenes, creating a schedule of announcements, which is a fun position to be in just so we don't step on our own toes announcing things. Uh, um, so we're having a really fun time right now. And I, I I definitely encourage anybody interested to check out punkscape.xyz if they have a yep. few, an opportunity to do so.
0: And I actually have seen more banner projects coming oh, yeah. online. So that's something positive as well for the space. Perhaps Punkscapes was one of the earliest, maybe too early in a way, but I think it's great to see A lot of new projects coming up and all the projects rising together so to speak
1: that's that's our theory about it at least and we're really excited every time a new banner project launches we cheer them on we view it as a community of these kinds of projects and we're enthusiastic about all of them we really are we talk about the other projects and people from our community go and buy those sometimes you know and and show off those in it and we just look at it as like the the NFT community is small enough that y'all have to be on the same team, basically, against the rest of the world that hasn't dipped into NFTs yet. It's not so, uh, and certainly within the banner space, you can still count them on a spreadsheet, at least a small one, as as Jaleel did recently. <laughs> so it's it's definitely a a niche within a niche, uh, but it's one we believe in. Uh,
0: just to conclude with this, because I really like this project, uh, the Punkscapes because not only is the art really awesome but both the community is a big part of why i invested and i stayed invested in this project and the way that the team and like the community in general has been pushing things forward for for i think i believe it's for the whole space it's you're just doing really innovative stuff both with the animations and even the the legal aspects I mentioned earlier that I was a bit suspicious when I didn't see the legal terms, but now and earlier earlier on, I understood that it, it was because things were really being thought out in a proper way. And on the other episode that we recorded with Jalil, we also spoke about the, the metadata data and why it wasn't locked. So all these little things that show me a high attention to detail and care for the community and the long-term aspect of the project and this is way beyond the art in my opinion and it's one of the main things why i love this project
1: yeah i mean for me the best part has been the people uh it sounds trite to say that but working on this thing and the the people that i've met with it the people in the community it has really been a pleasure to get to you know it's a smart community (laughs) i really do enjoy the people from it so i i that that, will, that is valuable. You know, you, you get one run at this life and these people that you meet and as contacts with and you do business with and you can, if you can build this. And, I, and from the start, I, I really came to learn very quickly that it was a project I wanted as much involvement as I possibly could get because of the people who were making it happen. Uh, and that continues to be true.
0: Did you start as an investor, by the way? I did, yeah. Yeah,
1: Well, I should say this. Before it launched, when it Mm -hmm. was still... um, When Jaleel was playing around with building it, basically. And he had already Uh started kind of posting ideas about it and things like that. I decided randomly, just from having made friends with Jaleel and a couple other people in the community, I decided I am going to build a product that is utilizing PunkScapes on something near day one. That was my original plan, which is a strange plan, right? Because it's like, I want to build a product that uses your product even before yours exists. And I started out doing that and I shifted gears. By the way, that original that original product isn't gone. It isn't released either, but it will come back as an idea. Um, I shifted over to Animated AnimatedScapes because you know, I, I continued to get more and more involved as, as time went on. Uh, yeah I mostly I just bought in and my and my ownership of the project is largely driven by the fact that I own a bunch of punkscapes so'm I build in part that self-interest of the more I can help grow this project it's adding value to the punkscapes that I own I think that's a great alignment of ownership uh, you know we, uh, for for any entity I, I, my the value of it rises or falls for me too in other words yeah it, it kind of just happened progressively I guess my title now is actually co lead on the project. So it really has has grown, but I, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking around for a long time with it.
0: i good to know. <laughs> cool. All right. So I guess that ties it up really nicely. So thanks again for being with us. And keep up the good work.
1: Well, thank you so much. And nice to meet you both. Thanks.
2: Okay. Bye Bye-bye. bye. Bye-bye.
0: Alright, that's a wrap for today. Hope you enjoyed the show. As always. If you enjoyed the show and you have feedback, you can email me, podcast at mastermind.fm. And if you just want to say thanks or just tell me that you enjoyed the show, you can leave a five-star review on iTunes. Hope you have a great week and see you in the next episode.